Scripture reading for this morning is found in Isaiah chapter 2. It's actually our sermon text for this morning. So if you want to turn in the Pew Bible, if you're using that one, to page 567, we're going to read chapter 2 of Isaiah. Would you please stand with me in honor of God's word? This is the word of the Lord. The word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war any more. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. For you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east and of fortune tellers like the Philistines, and they strike hands with the children of foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there is no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. So man is humbled, and each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from, from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up and it shall be brought low, against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, and against all the oaks of Bashan, and against all the lofty mountains, and against all the uplifted hills, against every high tower and every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish, and against all the beautiful craft. And the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And the idols shall utterly pass away, and people shall enter into caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. In that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship to the moles and to the bats and to enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? You may be seated as we pray. Oh God, this is a sobering passage, and we thank you for the good news that you have provided us who deserve nothing but bad news. We thank you for your adopting grace through the Lord Jesus and his death on the cross and resurrection, conquering death and the grave. We thank you that for us insolent rebels who've all shaken our fists in your face, that you did not just leave us to ourselves to give us what we deserve, but you came after us and you did everything that was necessary to restore our relationship with you, to reconcile us to yourself through Jesus. So we thank you for the cross. We thank you for adopting grace whereby we can say, Abba, Father, that we can cry out to you and call you our Heavenly Father this morning. 
Lord, as we this month highlight the needs of children in our state who are in need of foster care and adoption, Lord, help us to see the connection between the gospel of grace and the adopting grace that you've provided for us and the impulse to move toward children in need. Lord, as we pray for one child, a real child in real need right now, each week, I pray that you would raise up folks in our church family who would prayerfully consider whether they are the answer to some of these prayers. We pray specifically this morning for Dequan. We know that he would like to be adopted along with his brother, Quezon, and we pray, Lord, that you would provide an adoptive family for them. Lord, we pray that you would protect this precious little boy and that you would pour out your grace and your peace in his life, that you would provide for him. You are a father to the fatherless, and we know your heart from hearing passages like James 1, that pure and undefiled religion is to look after widows and orphans in their distress. And so, Lord, we pray that you give us your heart for boys in need, girls in need, like Daquan and Quezon, and pray that you would accomplish all that you have intended for this month as we focus on some of those needs. Lord, we also pray for the Kirks, and we thank you for... um, the partnership that you've established with them for the sake of the gospel. We thank you for your providence to direct them here to Bethel for this past year with them and the blessing that they've been on our church family. Lord, thank you that we are able and in a position to bring them on and support them as they prepare to head to Indonesia. Lord, we pray your blessing on their family. Lord, please, we pray your blessing on Betsy as she carries this baby um, to the point of delivery we know in in just the next couple of weeks with some of the complications. We pray that you would protect her health and the baby's health. Uh, We do ask for a safe and healthy delivery for both Betsy and this precious little baby that you've given to them. Lord, guard and protect their family. Um, Prepare them in every way for uh, what you've called them to do in Indonesia. Pray for Nora and Harriet and Hugh and the baby to come. I pray that they would gladly join with their parents, their parents' heart for the nations, uh, that they would never resent the sacrifice, that they would love the gospel and the mission that you've called them on, and that they would eagerly join alongside their parents to participate. Help Betsy and Alex to be sensitive and... um, grace-filled parents with their kids, uh, to know how to shepherd them wisely with some of the unique challenges that they'll face as they transition to life in Indonesia. Lord, I pray your blessing on Alex's ordination process and pray that that would be really beneficial to equip him for what is ahead. Lord, we thank you for calling them to Indonesia, this, this huge Muslim nation with 226 of the least reached people groups in the world. And we pray that you would use Alex and Betsy to cause your gospel to run and be honored in that nation. Lord, I pray that many men would be trained up and equipped through Alex's teaching and mentorship and discipleship to be bold and effective witnesses and church planners. And Lord, I pray that as they continue to prepare, would you raise up partners, individuals and churches to meet the needs that they have so that they can be freed up to go. And Lord, as we come now to your word, to study it, to sit under it, we pray that you would expose our pride and just break it down. I pray that we would welcome your pride-destroying work. And I pray that we would humble ourselves under your mighty hand, that we would welcome your humility-cultivating work. We know that you oppose the proud, but you give grace to the humble. So humble us and show us how the gospel can secure us and humble us and fill us at the core and guard us against all the 
iterations of pride in, as it rises up in such insidious ways in our lives. So help us, Lord, to humbly hear your word and receive it this morning for the glory of your name and the good of our souls. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, for those of you who are visiting with us this morning, we've just recently begun a study um, through the Old Testament book of Isaiah. And if you're not familiar with Isaiah, you may have listened as I read chapter 2 and said, what in the world is that all about and why would we spend time studying that? Um, Well, Isaiah is one of the major prophetic books in the Old Testament. Um, His ministry spanned from 740 B.C. to about 680 B.C. So this book, yes, was written into a time and culture very different from our own in many ways. Okay, so because of that, reading it, um, understanding it can be a bit intimidating, confusing. But just think about this thought, okay? Do you know, that's a, it's a question, do you know how many copies of the Four Dummies books there are in print today? checked it out this morning. Thankfully, they have a, a little page on their website to tell you the answer to that question. There are 250 million copies in that series in print. Okay? People want to be able to access the foreign worlds of things that are important to them. Right? Whether you're not very technologically savvy and so you need iPhone for dummies so that you can access the world of this phone so that you can use it and benefit from it because you know there's a lot packed in there, right? Or maybe it's investing, okay? Or car repair for dummies. There's like 1,800 plus titles in the series, okay? So I hope that the world of Isaiah and the world that is Isaiah is important enough to us to want to work through it, okay? There's a whole lot more payoff in studying this book than learning investment jargon or how to use your GPS. A couple other books in the series, okay? So, the book begins by saying the vision, this is actually back in chapter 1, verse 1. You can see it there. It's on page 566 and 67 if you're using the Pew Bible. Um, the whole book starts out, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, when, which he saw, it's a vision that he saw, concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Okay, so that's why it spans this long period of time, these four kings. So Isaiah was God's prophet to the people of Judah for like 60 plus years. So he saw a lot in those years, right? And what was most important about what he saw was, was what the Lord showed him. He showed Isaiah reality from his divine, all-wise, omniscient perspective, not from the spiritually blind perspective of so many in his day, which is why this vision was so important for them and which is why this vision is so important for us today. It has, this book has so much to show us. It's a vision. So much to show us about the glory of God, what he's like to show us our own hearts, our own sin, our own weakness, our own need, and the idolatrous machinations, kind of the workings of our hearts, it will really shine the light. You think it's so weird and foreign of a world, and then all of a sudden we, we get a little bit of Bible for dummies, you know, and we get a little closer to the world, and all of a sudden it exposes us. Whoa, there's nothing new under the sun. Okay? So it gives us a divine interpretation of the past and over and over again, it gives us amazing glimpses into the future. Glimpses given by the only one who knows the end from the beginning. And our passage for this morning is a vision into the future, not just Isaiah's future, which was way back, but even the future for us as well. So what do we see? Um, Look there. There's a Insert in your bulletin if you need the outline there, or I think the the points will come up on the slides. So first point, verses 1 to 4, what this world is coming to. Look at chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. The word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It's almost like another heading here. 
um, as he gets into chapter 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. Okay, so let's pause for a moment while we do a little ancient Near East for dummies. And please know I'm not insulting you. Um, I'm just extending the illustration, okay? Um, So notice when this vision will be realized. In the latter days. (laughs) Now, what are your connotations with latter days? People with, you know, white shirts and black ties. Um, This has nothing to do with Mormonism or the Church of Latter-day Saints. I guess that's the same thing. Okay, the latter days in the minds of the people that were hearing, reading what Isaiah was saying refers to the days of the Messiah. The days when the promised ruler, the, the son of David, David was a great king and yet he was imperfect. And God promised that there was going to be this perfect king one day who would rule in righteousness and not be disappointing in any way. So the latter days refer to the days of the Messiah when, when he would come, his kingdom would come, and his kingdom would be established. Okay, So in those days, the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. Again, ancient Near East, we don't talk this way. People believe the gods lived in the high places, right, on the mountains and hills. So that's where they built altars. That's where they built temples. Okay, they were the closest places to heaven. Kind of makes sense, right? In addition, the higher the mountain, the more impressive and impregnable. Okay, so just remember, this is poetry. If you're looking at an ESV Bible, you'll see that even the way they lay it out is intended to show you that this is poetry as compared to, say, you know, flip back to page 370 and look at, the history and how it's laid out. It's totally different because it's narrative. You see that? So, as such, if this is poetry, we should expect metaphors and word pictures and imagery. So what this means is that the kingdom of the Lord, the mountain that houses the dwelling of the Lord, shall one day be the highest, lifted up above all the other hills. What would those be? Other so-called gods and powers. Okay, so here's the point. It will happen. This shall happen. You can bank on it. There is one God. As hard as human beings have tried to deny it, one day the one God is going to make it unavoidably clear that he is the only God and therefore also the only Savior. So what else is going to happen in the latter days? All the nations, look at the end of verse 2 and beginning of verse 3, all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. So again, notice what's happening here. The kingdom of the Lord is raised up as the supreme kingdom, the supreme government of the world. And all the competition shrinks and falls away. And all the nations start flowing to this holy city, the city of God where the God of Jacob dwells. So question, why are they drawn almost magnetically up this mountain? Why is this human stream traveling uphill? Look at at the middle of verse 3. That he may teach us his ways. This is why they want to go, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. So they want to know this God. They want to know his ways. And not merely because they're curious. They want to walk. Do you see it there? They want to walk in his paths. They want to follow him. So why is this happening? Well, again, keep reading. Look, for out of Zion, it's another term for the city of God, shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. The law and the word of the Lord are going out. And many peoples from all nations are being magnetically drawn and they're going up. Okay, so the word of the Lord as it goes out is drawing these people in and the word of the Lord is reordering the world. I should say that again. The word of the Lord is reordering the world. The same Lord who said by words, let there be light. And there was light. 
who spoke and ordered the world by his word and filled the world by his word, this same Lord is sending out his word again. And all the impressive and powerful governments that have risen and fallen, all the religious systems, all of that that might be impressive, it's all crumbling away as everything is being ordered around the supreme Lord and his word and his kingdom. You see that? So look at else what will happen in the latter days. Verse 4. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. So this supreme Lord will be the judge of all the earth. And for those who come to him on his terms, submitting to his law and word, to learn his ways, to walk in his paths, Look at this perfect peace and restoration will be theirs. Okay, they don't have any any need for weapons anymore. There's going to be rest from all enemies on all sides. No more threats, no more enmity. Okay, we probably take our peace and freedom so much for granted. But imagine people under the threat of ISIS, Christians under the threat of ISIS, hearing this word. Do you think that this might have a little greater meaning to them. No more war, no more threats, perfect peace and restoration. Well, later on in Isaiah, the same vision of the end is described like this in chapter 11. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. See the same mountain language is, is used. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the water covers the sea. Waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse who shall stand as a signal for the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Again, like, man, who is, what is all this? Seems so far away. Well, who's the root of Jesse? Who's standing as a signal for the peoples? In the course of Isaiah, we'll see it's the suffering servant, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is lifted up on a cross as the light of the world so that people from every tongue and tribe and people and nation would be drawn out of the darkness and slavery to their sin into his light. Okay, that many people would be, in the words of Colossians 1, qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints in light because they've been rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption. Freedom from our dark slavery by the forgiveness of our sins. So that's what this world is coming to. That's where everything is going. That kind of perfect peace and restoration. Okay? The news that you watch and read that oftentimes freaks you out or depresses you and you go to bed and you can't fall asleep or you wake up and your mind is spinning, what if, what if, what if? It is, in one sense, very true, okay? It's a broken, sad, hostile, threat-filled, chaotic world. Yeah, it is. But the news also lies. This world is not spinning out of control. When it comes to tomorrow's headlines, the Lord has the corner on the market. He alone knows what this world is coming to because he alone is the one taking it there. And he wants us to see it. How kind and gracious of him that he wants us to see where he's taking things so that we can walk in the light of what we see. So one of the reasons this is so important is because, sadly, the so-called people of God are too often blind to this vision because they have all kinds of man-made stars in their eyes filling their vision. We can all fall prey to this. So look at the second point. Why is it so important for the people of Isaiah's day and us to see this vision Well, verses 6 to 9, when the church is full of the world. For you, this is Isaiah speaking. It's it's an abrupt shift, but if you keep reading, you'll see what's going on. For you have rejected, Isaiah speaking to the Lord, the Lord has rejected his people, the house of Jacob. Why has the Lord rejected his people? Because they're full of things from the east and of fortune tellers like the Philistines. And they strike hands with the children of foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold and there's no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses and there's no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands to what their own fingers have made. So the city of God is supposed to be full of light, full of the glory of the Lord, right? 
supposed to be filled with righteousness and justice, with love and peace. But here's Judah, the so-called people of God, and they're filled with all the wrong things. And for us, this happens when the church is full of the world. Okay, the people of God, we're supposed to be a light to the nations. We're supposed to be salt and light, influencing a city on a hill, shining into the darkness. But here, the influence has pervasively flipped and gone the other direction. Rather than a light to the nations, they're captivated by the lights, camera, and action of the world around them. And so the city of man is masquerading as the city of God. Do you see that? So you could say that the church is empty when it's filled with the world. You could say also, beware the emptiness of this kind of fullness. Okay, so the the church is supposed to talk like this, just as an example, Psalm 20. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. But look at verse 7. They were filled with horses and chariots. They had their trust in the wrong place, their hope in the wrong place. Remember that vision of the latter days in chapter 11, you know, with the signal and the, the, the uh, root of Jesse? It said, the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Instead, the people of God are full of all the wrong things. Okay, so the point is they thought too highly of man-made sources of wisdom, power, security, Like, just one, for instance, I mean, we might think this is goofy, the fortune tellers. Like, I've never gone to a fortune teller. Can't believe those primitive people would do such silly things. Okay, it is supposed to be dumb. They had the one who single-handedly controlled the future, and they're going to the fortune tellers of the Philistines. But we shouldn't hold this out at arm's length. Not all of you are money people, like really kind of interested in in all of that stuff, you'd, you'd rather just like to set it up and forget about it. But you can imagine how some Christians, at least maybe in some cases just professed Christians, can be more interested in the predictions of, I don't know if he's hot anymore, Warren Buffett, you know, the oracle of Omaha, whoever the expert du jour is, because it changes all the time. I don't mean what you would profess and what you'd put in the box. I'm talking about what you're actually excited about and interested in. Like, do you get more thrilled about this vision or about, oh, what the futurist says, the guy that really knows? Okay, that's that's what I'm talking about as far as I think that's what Isaiah is talking about here, about being full of certain things and their values being all out of whack. So we can give lip service to the Lord as the source of our security, protection, help, But what is it that really excites us, fills us with the security and protection and help? Do we look to man-made things for those things? So this vision is important for us to see so that we guard against our hearts filling up with the wrong things. Listen to Ray Ortland um, from his Isaiah book. It's book of the month. You can see it inside your bulletin there. Um, I've quoted from it already, highly recommended. He says this, when believers stuff their lives full of false ideals and comforts, it's because they feel empty within. They've lost their sense of God. If we fill ourselves with anything other than God, we are not enriched. We are brought low. Okay, so we, we worship created things because we feel empty within. We're trying to find something that'll stuff in there and satisfy us, but we end up being left empty when we worship created things. So we're no better off when afterwards than we were before we put our hope in the wrong thing, trust in the wrong thing. So look at the ironic effect of this idolatry of trying to fill up on, get ahead by human means. Look at verse nine. So man is humbled and each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. You see the irony there? We all become like what we admire. So if you bow down to small created things, believing that they will raise you up, you become small. You're brought low. So that's why this idolatry, and these people were still going to church, mind you, still going through the motions. So again, it's not that they weren't religious, it's their 
lip service was different from their heart reality, okay? But there's a good news corollary all through Isaiah to this bad news that, you know, those who worship idols are going to be humbled, brought low. Isaiah says over and over again, if you humble yourself before the Lord, you will be exalted. It's like Isaiah in chapter 6. He recognized how dirty he was in the light of God's glory. And he, even as the prophet says, woe is me, I'm undone. It's like the guy in Luke 18 beating his breast, God have mercy on me, the sinner. And if you're humbled like that and you see the suffering servant who was willingly, he willingly humbled himself to the point of death, death on a cross, went through all that shame for us. He was lifted up on a tree in order to rescue us from our pride and our foolishness. And if we come to Jesus, bowing the knee to him as Lord, if you come to Jesus, we who are weary and heavy laden because of our own stupid pride in many cases, right? If we take his yoke on us and learn from his gentle, humble heart, we're going to find rest for our restless souls. And we'll be filled up with true peace, real peace and satisfaction and protection. And when that happens, you are then one from among the peoples and nations that we read about in verses 2 to 4, coming to the city of God. (laughs) Do you remember what's promised to those pilgrims? So do you see why we need to see this vision? So if we come to Jesus... We are saying, come, let's go to the mountain of the Lord, the house of the God of Jacob. And then there's wonderful promises that are there for us. But that vision of swords beaten into plowshares isn't all that we see here of the latter days. It's not the only thing that the world is coming to. If any of us persists in our pride, you know, worshiping man-made greatness, treating the Lord as though he were a small thing, then here is what the world is coming to in verses 10 to 21. So look at verse 10 and following. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day. It's already said. It's on the calendar against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low, against all the cedars of Lebanon. Okay, what in the world is that? Well, it's economic might because they had exports. Those cedars were in high demand. Okay, so we would fill out, if we were poets trying to write of our time, we would fill out the details a little differently, but the issues are the same. Okay, economic might. We can put our hope and and pride in those things, lofty and lifted up, against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains and up all the uplifted hills, political power, against every high tower, every fortified wall, military might, against all the ships of Tarshish, engineering. Those were like the greatest ships at the time. How about the pride in engineering and scientific advancement? Is that contemporary? And against all the beautiful craft, how about artistic greatness? As wonderful as art is, and you can do it to the glory of God, we can be prideful in our artistic greatness. And the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Everything's going to be brought down, folks. Everything in which we trust, everything in which we worship, if it's not the real God, everything we boast in, Everything that impresses us that's not the one and only true God, it will all be shown for what it is. Good things can be turned into God things. And they're, they just lead us astray. They're a lie. They don't make good gods. And so, verse 18, the idols shall utterly pass away and people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord, from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. In that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship, to the moles and to the bats, (laughs) to enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. 
So these things that were so precious, they commanded so much attention and wielded so much influence. You know what they're going to, in that day, they're just going to be thrown out like so much trash. You know, bats reside in caves and it's, it's basically just, they just are trashed because they can't do anything at that point for you. And it'll be really obvious that they can't do anything for you at that point. So it's like Jesus saying, what can you give in exchange for your soul? These things seem so valuable now, but on that day, very clear that they're worthless. So what will our precious electronic devices do for us? Do any of us really think that these things can save us? No. But functionally, we can be full of and get really excited about and put our hope in that stuff and just kind of about the glory of the Lord and the vision of the future. No wonder we're so freaked out and anxious because the gadgets don't do good for cultivating real courage and you know, fearlessness in the face of any threats because they're not God, they're nothing. What will our work achievements mean on that day? What will our net worth mean on that day? What will your culinary skills and fixations be able to do for you on that day? Again, we can idolize some of this stuff. What will your favorite movies or TV shows mean to you, your collections on that day, your video games, your high scores? What's that going to do for you on that day? We can get so locked in and wrapped up in these things. Your athletic achievements, your trophies and medals, what do you fixate on? What do you take pride in? What do you boast of? What good will it be on that day? The city of man will fall. Okay, so if... If we were poets, we would write about 20th, 21st century prideful idolatry in different ways, different imagery, but the essence is the same. We still try to build the Tower of Babel, a monument to our greatness, and we may even succeed for a time. And our hands might be full of treasure, full of accolades and power and influence and comfort, testaments to our financial or military or religious or cultural or scientific greatness. But what we raise to our own honor ironically leads to our shame if we're bowing down to these things and worshiping them. So we end up exalting that which will inevitably be brought low. So we need to see. This is what God is doing. It's so merciful, so gracious, even though this is such a sobering text. We need to see the tape rolled out. Like this is what it looks like in the future. This is where this is all going to guard us from when those impulses rise in our souls, when we hear the, the siren calls to join the Babel building projects all around us. We need to imagine that it's all like, I think this is what Isaiah's doing. He's kind of standing up. He walks up beside you, and here's all this, you know, there's lots of building sounds going on in the world, you know, everybody trying to build themselves up and be impressive. We need to imagine it's all like trying to build your house or your office or your security on top of this wooden scaffolding that's way up there, but it's already kind of creaking and about to collapse. Look how high it is, you know? I'll be safe up there. It's impressive up there. Everyone will look up to me. It's a great view from up there. And Isaiah stands beside us, whispers in our ears. Do you see the foundation of that thing? The bolts are already loose. So it's already starting to crumble. Don't put your hope there. Like, I've got an alternate vision here. So what are we after when we do this idolatry thing? We bow down to created things. We're after greatness in the eyes of other people. We want to be impressive. Greatness in our own eyes. We want to kind of justify ourselves to ourselves. I'm somebody. Prove ourselves. We want the praise of dust. Other dust balls, just like ourselves. So the chapter closes abruptly, but very appropriately. Look at verse 22. Stop treasuring dust. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath. Reminds us of the creation account. We were formed from the dust. It was God that breathed life into us. Stop regarding man, for of what account is he? As one commentator put it, the greatest need of man is to reject man. So Isaiah is on a mission for our natural 
kind of wiring and inclination that people are big and God is small, he's on a mission to reverse that. (laughs) He wants to show us how big and grand and great and glorious the Lord is and how small people are so that we put our hope and our trust and our confidence in the right place. He wants to help us stop regarding and being impressed with human dust balls and start regarding and being impressed with the Lord of glory. We really need this vision. We need to pay heed to this vision. So in light of what this fallen, falsely exalted world is coming to, in light of what this world is coming to when God renews it, what should we do? Well, the answer is actually found in verse 5. If you noticed, we skipped that verse. Look at verse 5. Last point. Come walk in the light to the city with foundations. O house of Jacob, a call to the people of God. Come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. So this is a call to us to cast down our idols, like we sung, to throw them from us. Anything that competes with God's rightful place as the supreme one in our hearts and our affections and in our values. Throw those idols away now so that you won't be forced to throw them to the mats and the, bo- <laughs> mats and the, bo- the bats and the moles. Just reverse that. Um, the bats and the moles later. Okay, so it matters immensely what we hold on to and what we cast away from us. Remember Paul in Philippians 3, he said, when his eyes were open to see Jesus, he had that vision on the Damascus Road. Even though he's physically blinded by the light, he saw for the first time who this Lord of glory was. And all of a sudden, everything that he counted gain became loss. His resume. And Jesus, who he thought was an imposter, loss, waste of time, was his greatest gain. I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, but don't feel sorry for me, in order they may gain Christ. So it's a call to, to lift our eyes to the hills where our help comes from, set our minds on things above. It's a call to live now in the light of the coming kingdom, the day of the Lord. It's a call to live like Abraham who by faith, he saw the vision, believed it, living temporarily on this earth, looking for the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God, Hebrews 11. It's a call to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. It's a call for the church to be the outpost of the latter-day city on a hill. It's coming. That day is coming when the Lord is going to be exalted alone and everything else is just going to crumble. So the church gets to be the outpost, like the front guard to tell everyone if we are walking in the light of the Lord, we can say, come, come on. That whole scaffolding is collapsing, but I know of a real foundation. Come with me. So when we live like this, we become a city on a hill, the light of the world. And the word of the Lord, the gospel, will come out from us and many of the peoples and nations will come because we're walking in the light of the Lord, leading the way. Do you see that? In the flow of thought, verses 2 to 4, it's a picture of the end. The nations, come, let's go up to where the Lord is. And then verse 5, Isaiah says, come, people of God. So that if you're walking in the light of the Lord, you're going to be shining that light so that the nations will come. So that's what the world is coming to. Are you coming? Let's pray. God, I pray that you would Open our eyes to see what we need to see this morning. We need to see 
need to see this vision. We need to see what this world is coming to. And we need to really believe it. And we need to see our tendency to idolatry way more than we probably typically acknowledge. That we have all kinds of God substitutes and functional saviors. And I pray that you would shine the light in the dark corners of our hearts, our lives, and help us to see it and give us grace to humble ourselves under your mighty hand and throw those aside and trust in Jesus alone as our Savior to save us from the slavery and the darkness to false gods and false saviors. I pray that we would come to him, that we would walk in the light of the Lord, the path of freedom and life, and that we would radiantly be the church shining with the light of our God and Savior and calling people to come with us on the pilgrim path to the city with foundations, walking in the light of the Lord all the way, So, Lord, please, would you open our eyes. In Jesus' name, amen. As we prepare our hearts for participating in the Lord's table, would you, if the elders would come forward, they're going to be helping um, serve the elements. I want us to just think in terms of the book of 1 John, because there's so much intersection with um, the themes in Isaiah here in this section. So listen to 1 John 1, 6 to 9. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then if you know the book of 1 John, he ends it by saying, little children, keep yourselves from idols. (laughs) Because idols are deceitful. They want to draw us into the darkness. And so if you're convicted, if you're thinking about the ways in which you have been bowing down to man-made things and putting your hope and trust in the wrong place, well, this, is, this table is a great reminder of the fact that 1 John 1, 9 is true. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us, cleanse us from that idolatry. So it's not just legal forgiveness, it's heart-level purification because idolatry corrupts us. So it's really good news. So Isaiah 2 is really sobering. Ah, so scary. But the whole purpose of it is that we would humble ourselves so that he can give us grace and we can walk in the light of the Lord. So we regularly, John Calvin talked about how our hearts are like idol factories. We regularly can bow down to all the wrong things. And we regularly get to be reminded of the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus who died and said, it is finished, and he paid for all of our prideful rebellion and idolatry. And we get to taste of that grace and forgiveness and cleansing this morning. Such good news for prideful rebels like us. So let's celebrate the table this morning. Um, We prideful idolaters can be cleansed. And that vision of the future, the day to come, those promises are all ours so we can be encouraged and give thanks. If any of you are here this morning and you're not a Christian, you don't claim to be, um, you're still, maybe you're here because someone brought you. Maybe you're trying to figure these things out. We are so glad that you're here. 
that was probably like drinking from a fire hose, Isaiah 2, what in the world? So you might have a lot of questions. That's great. We'd love to help answer those questions. You can come talk to me, the person that invited you. Um, this table is like a family meal. There's nothing magical about the, the cracker or the juice. So we're glad that you're here. I hope that you hear that. But just let the elements pass because you don't need to participate in a ritual that doesn't really mean anything to you personally. There's, there's, you're not going to get any points with God for doing this. Instead, we'd encourage you to consider Jesus, that one who died for us, because what you really need is to come to him in repentance and faith. So as we prepare for the table, let's pray and give thanks, and then um, the elements will both be distributed, and please just hold them as you, as you prayerfully prepare your hearts. The musicians will play quietly for a little while, and then we'll all join and sing once everyone has been served. Oh God, thank you for the gospel and this regular reminder that idolaters, people who've shaken their fist in your face, turning our back on you and running to all kinds of pseudo-gods that can really do nothing for us but ultimately shame us, that you loved us and sent yourself, your, your son to die for us so that we could be forgiven and cleansed of our idolatry. And so, Lord, I pray that you would minister that grace and cleansing to us. Humble us, show us our prideful rebellion and idolatry, and humble us and cleanse us, and, and fill us with grace and hope and faith and confidence in Jesus so that we can shine brightly with that grace and truth to the world around us and call lots of others to follow us on the pilgrim path to the city that, that really is going to stand forever under the good king who is truly exalted and great and glorious. So may the table be a reminder of these things and may we give hearty thanks for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.